right. Well, good evening. We're in Numbers chapter 5. You can turn there. If you remember from our introduction to uh, the book of Numbers, we, see, we saw that it was a story about Jesus. It is a story of God's faithfulness. It is a warning about rebellion and unbelief. It is a story of the already, not yet. It is essentially our story. It is the story to take from Peter of the elect exiles. We are sojourning here on earth till we get to the promised land, heaven. So far in Numbers, God has given Moses the rules for taking a census. There was two censuses, that of the people for warfare, that of, who can, uh, of the priest who can serve on the priestly duties. He gave rules and instructions for how the camp of the Israelites to be arranged with the tabernacle at the center, the, um, the Levites surrounding it, Aaron particularly at the entrance of it, and the people going out from there. Um, God gave very specific duties for the priestly clans, what they were to do in the sanctuary, what they were not to do, what they were to carry, not carry. Um, <clears throat> And now we come to chapter 5, and there seems to be this radical shift in the narrative. God gives Moses now uh, instructions on how to deal with issues that happen in life, or what happen within any community of people. These instructions are for how to deal with uncleanness, transgression, or accusation. They are case studies, if you will. They serve as templates for a variety of issues. So in other words, what we'll see tonight is that there's this situation, but it can reach out to many other different situations. It's a template, if you would. Uh, so I've entitled tonight, Case Studies for the Community. Our text is Numbers chapter 5. I would ask you to stand as I would pray. We'll read Numbers chapter 5, and then we'll look at Numbers chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you every hour. There's no question about it. We need you every second. We need you because you hold all things together. We thank you, Lord God, that you give us through your Holy Spirit the ability to hear and understand your word. And I pray, Lord God, in this difficult passage tonight, this difficult text, Lord, that we would have the mind of Christ to hear and understand what our Savior says to us tonight that we would walk away, Lord, not confused, but rather all the more in awe of a holy God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what God says tonight. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the, pe command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp, in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, <coughs> Excuse me. Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, <clears throat> and he shall make full restitution for the wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. 
But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest. In addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him, and every contribution of the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from his eyes for the husband, and she is undetected though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over over comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required for her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord." And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in, this, and in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath saying, If no man has lined with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you are under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and the woman's, and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord God makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your fall and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen and Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them into wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. And afterwards he shall make the woman drink the water. And when, she has been, when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away. And the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Whew, you may be seated. That was an awful lot of stuff, right, going on? Oh, I have one. Thank you. Thank you.
I'll take one other one. I'll take a fresh one. Thank you. As I said, I've, I've entitled this Case Studies for the Community, and we have the first case study, this case study for impurity. In Numbers 5, 1 to 4, it says this, then, Moses, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so all the people of Israel did. So this matters because God had just laid out for them how the camp is to be. The order in which they are to come out from the tabernacle, God himself being in their very midst, the center of them, and going out from there and Outside of the 12 tribes, doesn't tell us the distance, it doesn't tell us anything like that in this text, doesn't tell us that, but they are to go outside the camp. They are to be away for three different things. If they had leprosy, if they had a discharge, and they had contact with the dead. Leprosy is the Hebrew word sarat, it means a skin disease. It's any skin disease. We think of leprosy, we, we think of the old movies with people with bandages over them, limbs falling off. That certainly is a form of leprosy, um, but that's not what he means here. It's any skin disease. And if you remember, you got to go back to Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, where extensively God deals with a person who has some sort of disease of the skin. Uh, just to summarize it all up... Um, how you deal with somebody who has a skin disease. It says this in Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He is to live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. If you remember anything about the book of Leviticus, one word would define the book of Leviticus, that is holy. God is holy. God is a holy God. He can't live within the presence of sin or sickness or any of those things, so they would be outside the camp. If they had a discharge, when he's talking about discharge, he means a discharge of semen or blood, a woman in her menstrual cycle. Leviticus 15 deals extensively with this. We were just having an elders meeting and I just commented like Numbers is the footnote to Leviticus. Like if you want to go, oh, what's it? Go back, go to, go to Numbers and uh, get a little more information, I guess. But it says this concerning about somebody who has a discharge within their body. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an emission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. In other words, God's saying, this is unclean to me. But it's not unclean to the point that you can't ever recover from because there was a period of washing. There was a period of seven days of which they could become clean and enter back into the camp. Same with the person who had leprosy. 
They would continuously, the priest would come to them and the priest would look and the priest would see and if it's gone away and God listed out very extensively all these possible different things it could be and they could be welcomed back into the camp. See, this is not uh, without any hope. The third is contact with the dead. Contact with the dead. A dead body was unclean. If you came in contact with a dead body, you were unclean. And to be unclean means that you therefore could not take your sacrifice and bring it to the tabernacle. If you can't bring your sacrifice, if you can't bring your sin offering, then you cannot have at that moment, essentially, your sins atoned for. So it's a big deal to be unclean. It is a really big deal to not be able to come to the altar and offer a sacrifice to God. Contact with the dead was forbidden. But what do you do? What happens if mom, God forbid, passes away, dad passes away? People die, right? You know what the death rate is? 100% for everybody. Um, that's why we need to be right with the Lord now. You had to deal with dead bodies. You would be unclean if you had to bury a relative. God gave very specific instructions concerning the dead for the priests. There was only certain people of which they could make themselves unclean because they had to make themselves unclean. It says this in Leviticus chapter 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people. In other words, if a priest saw somebody drop dead, they couldn't go over and try to resuscitate or try to help. They had to be like, Whoa, I'm out. Nope, I'm out. That's what God is saying. Except for his closest relative his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has no husband, for, he may, for her he may make himself unclean. In other words, your immediate family you could make yourself unclean for. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. So what happens if you have an unclean priest? He can't make offerings. Numbers 19 would be the would be the go-to passage to get greater understanding on this. He talks about it later on in Numbers 19. And this is what he says in 19, 11 to 13, just to summarize it. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle. See, that's the key point. Defiles the tabernacle. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water of impurity has not, <clears throat> has not thrown, was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. That's what he says. Hold on, let me refix my notes here. I'm sorry about that. There we go, the joys of technology, right? They were not to 
touch a dead body unless they absolutely had to. And at times they had to. And God said, this is acceptable. You can, you can make yourself unclean by necessity. It's not a willful sin, but there's a way out of it. You clean yourself, you become clean, and then we're good. Why these laws? Why did God care about this? Well, the answer is found actually in Numbers 5, 1 to 4. Let me read them for you again. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. That's the key to the whole thing. A holy God cannot allow unholiness to come into His presence. And the people of Israel did so, and they put him outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. I like what Ian Dugan says in his commentary. These laws were not concerned with public health or the potential infection of others with contagious diseases. The concern was simply that which the, was simply that such defilement would make it impossible for, living, for the living God to dwell in their midst. Now, it had the effect of if somebody had a disease, a skin disease or something like that, it could be infectious. It did have the work of not spreading the infection to all the people. But the whole point is God says, I'm holy. We read this morning in Peter where God says, I am holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. We have to be holy like God is holy. We can't come any way we want. God says, this is how you come to me. This is how we come to God. The lesson that we can see in these laws, if you ask me, uh, the case study is that we are completely sinful. We are unable in and of ourselves to dwell in the presence of a holy God. These laws show us our great need for cleansing from sin. And the only way we are made fit for the presence of God the only way in which we are made fit for the presence of God is through the person and work of Jesus on our behalf. Paul understood this struggle. In Romans chapter 7, he writes this. In Romans 7, 24 to 20, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In other words, Jesus can be my deliverer. Jesus will take me away from this. That's the laws of concerning someone who has an impurity. Next is the laws for restitution or a case study for restitution. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him who, to whom he has done the wrong. But if, a man, but if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the priest... And in addition to the ram of atonement, which, is a, which, the, which atonement is made for him, and every contribution of all the holy 
donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Everyone shall keep his holy donation. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. So now we have a law where it's not necessarily going towards the vertical, but it's the horizontal and then to the vertical. This is, a, this is how we respond to people that we have sinned against. That's what he says. The sins that people commit by breaking faith to the Lord, and they realize they've done wrong, they are to make restitution. The simple lesson here is sin must be paid for. Sin must be paid for. God does not allow one single sin to go away other than those sins that are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. All sin must be paid for. God told Moses that in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. We should have this memorized by now. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. We say, nobody's getting away with nothing. Visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But notice that if they can make restitution to the person, they're to make restitution and add a fifth of the value to it. But that person's not around anymore. There's nobody in their family, whatever the, the wrong was, there's nobody in their family in which they can pay the restitution for. Then it went to the Lord. It went to the priest who stood as God's, uh, uh, what's the word, intermediaries here on earth. You know, the primary person against whom we sin is God. God is the primary person against whom we sin. That's what David meant. In Psalm 51, where he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Well, that's primarily God I've sinned against you, because he certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He certainly sinned against her husband, against the other guys that were with her husband who died. Right? There was a ton of sins that David committed against people, but he realized that primarily we sin against God. The other lesson we can see here is that God makes things right for His children through Jesus Christ. Restitution has to be made. Jesus makes things right for us. That is, if we confess our sins, He'll make things right for us. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, He, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's how you deal with a sin, a transgression that has been committed, and restitution needs to be made. That's a general template. Now we're going to spend the majority of our time on a case study dealing with suspected unfaithfulness. And this, I remember doing the intro and, and talking about this weird thing and saying, I'm looking at you, Mr. Roach, right? And you know what? Here I am preaching it, and John is smiling like there's no tomorrow. We should be glad to teach God's Word, no matter what it is. There's, there's, a, there's some things to learn in here. So let's just break up the rest of the chapter. We'll, we'll break it into chunks, and we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. 
the case for dealing with suspected unfaithfulness. And I'm assuming that as we read, maybe you ladies were like, man, this is so unfair and so one-sided. Um, well, we'll deal with all of that. This is what it says in verses 11 to 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a woman lies if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of the husband and she, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. In other words, not caught red-handed like that woman caught in adultery that they brought to Jesus. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or... If the spirit of jealousy comes over him and his wife, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. Holy smokes. She did or she didn't? What's going on here? She may have, she may not have. The crux of it is that the husband is jealous. The husband is jealous, and that begins the whole thing. He is jealous, and he thinks that his wife may have committed adultery. And that is enough to begin the process of finding out the truth. But notice what it says here. You might see, you know, imagine you're just, you think I did? And so we got to do all this? Notice, though, that the husband bears the burden of bringing the woman to the Lord and the offering on her behalf. It's not like he's just, you know, I'm making an accusation and you're going to deal with it. He has to deal with it, too. So look what it says in verse 15. And then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it. It is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. So in other words, he has to bring her before the Lord to the priest who stands between us and the Lord. You have a problem? You're worried about something? The first person you should take it to is to the Lord. You should take it to the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. He is to bring her to the priest. He is to bring her before the Lord. And He is to bring with her a barley offering. What's interesting about this offering is that it's coarse barley. Every other offering we read of in, in Leviticus was finely ground flour. This is a completely different because it is the offering of remembrance or the offering of jealousy. Again, Ian Diggin in his commentary, I think, states it rightly. He says, this grain offering, however, was devoid of the usual markers of joy that would be offered with it, oil and incense. There was no joy in this matter. How could there be? The husband thinks his wife cheated on him. She's being accused. She may or may not be guilty. There was nothing pleasant about any of this. And this case was to be brought to the priest and not a judge. Remember, God had established a system. Moses' father-in-law said, hey, you're doing this all wrong. You need to have groups of, 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 of tens, of fifties, and hundreds, and thousands, and all that. Why are you judging everybody, Moses? This is too much for you. 
This was a case that was not to be brought to a judge, but right to the priest. Bring it right to God because of the seriousness of the matter. It's serious because God uses marriage as a picture that represents His relationship to His covenant people. It is a, this matter is so serious that if it's true, death accompanies it. Look at what it says in Leviticus 20, 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. But what we have here is not a woman who is unfairly accused by her husband. She may or may not be. We don't know. It may seem that there's no rights for the woman here. But this law that God enacts right here is for the protection of the woman. Is for the protection of the woman. I like what um, Timothy Ashley says in his commentary. He says it, presents, it prevents a jealous husband from punishing his wife on the basis of suspicion alone. This complex ritual must be performed exactly so that the woman might be protected from a husband's whim in an age in which protections for women were admittedly few and far between. So he's to bring her to the priest. He's to bring the offering with it. And this is now what happens. This is the ritual which will happen. Verses 16 to 18. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hands the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. So there's a lot going on right here. What does it mean to bring her near? To the Lord. She does not enter in any way into the holy place. That would it was completely forbidden to go there. That's an instant death sentence. What it means to bring her before the Lord and set her before the Lord means that the ceremony was going to start, this ritual was going to start, and that she was going to stand alone before the Lord, and the God and God alone would be her judge. The husband is not judged. He made a judgment. He's not sure. The priest isn't saying one way or another. She stands before the Lord, and God is going to decide whether she's innocent or whether she's guilty. And of course, God always judges correctly. God never makes a mistake in His judgments. But there's several things here. Holy water. What is this holy water? It's most likely water from the labor that was by the altar in front of the tabernacle. Dust from the floor. Why does he say dust from the floor? You go back and look in Leviticus and you look in Exodus, you can't find that there was a floor on the tabernacle. There wasn't planks and they set it up and made a floor. It was the earth. It was the dust of the desert. It was the, uh, the, the sand of the desert. So he was to take a handful of this that was on the floor of the tabernacle, whatever it was, it was hard earth, it was sand, whatever, wherever God had him set up the tabernacle, and this happened, the priest was to take a handful of it, and he was to put it in 
the water in an earthen vessel. Then he was to unbind her hair, which could possibly symbolize a broken covenant. But I think there's also a greater meaning in this. She is now going to stand before the Lord. Every one of us, if we're honest, when we stand before the Lord, we are undone. I can't stand before the Lord on my own strength, neither can you. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who wrote of the coming of Christ and the sufferings of Christ, when he saw the Lord, what did he say? Behold, I am undone. I cannot stand in its presence. She was to take that jealousy offering into her hands, and then she was to repeat an oath. What it says in verse 19. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you are under your husband's authority... That's a sermon in and of itself right there, by the way. Be free from this water of bitterness that brings a curse. So right away, it starts to listen. If you're innocent, you're good. You'll be free from this bitterness that brings a curse. If she is innocent, she'll be free from any kind of consequence. Well, the oath goes on. Look what it says in verses 20 to 22. But if... But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then, says, let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, then she is to say this, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Holy smokes, right? What is all this going on? If you aren't, if you haven't, you're good. But if you have, man, you agree before God that this water, when it goes into your belly, is going to cause your thigh to fall away and your body swell. Holy mackerel. That's most likely talking about the inability to have children. I can tell you this. You probably don't want your thighs to fall away. I don't know. Maybe you do or don't. I don't know. You certainly don't want your body to swell. And you don't want your womb to swell. See, these consequences are really serious. They're serious because if she sinned, the consequences of sin are serious. How often we think that the consequences of sin, the things I do, the things I just nonchalantly do, don't have any kind of effect. Or God's just going to go, ah, it's, uh, it's just you. It's okay. I get you. <laughs> no, don't listen to that he gets us junk that's on TV. 
Sin is really serious. She is to agree with them with all of these consequences because she is to recognize that God is a God of justice. She not only has to drink from the water of bitterness, but now there's, an, there's an something else is added to it. But also the ink of the curse is added to the water. Look at what it says in 23 to 26. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book. So in other words, the picture is, here's the curse. Here's what you to repeat. Amen, amen. And then he is now, it's at least the way I read it, take at that point, dip his little stick in ink and begin to write out the curse Everything he made her say, he writes them out, and then he immediately takes water and washes the ink off into this earthen vessel, which has the water of bitterness and now has the ink of the curse in it. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. I mean, you know, just looking at it, I think it would cause bitter pain, whether you're innocent or not, right? And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as, a, as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. So when does she drink it? Is it three times she's got to drink it? Is it one time she's got to drink it? We're not really clear. I think it's just one time. So what happens here? The ink is added, the offering is burned, and the water is drunk. We're not really told if instantly, if she's guilty, all of these things will happen to her. Will it happen over time? We do know this, if she is guilty... These things will happen to her. There's no question. God said, this is what's going to happen to you. And God does not lie. Verses 27 to 28 says this, And when, she has, when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause her bitter pain, and her womb shall swell, and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. We should not take this to be like, you know, you, you see in the, in the ancient movies where that, you know, uh, uh, we suspect you of something. And so in order to find out whether you are not, we're going to burn you with fire. And if you live, well, you didn't do it. That's the Salem witch trials, Right? Well, if you're not a witch, then you'll live, right? But if you are, you'll burn. Well, what happened? Every one of them burned. It's not something like this. This is, do we understand it? No. But it's what God said to do. And therefore, it was the right thing to do, and it's the just thing to do. It says this in the rest of the chapter. This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out her, carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear 
her iniquity. Now, we need to be very careful here. We must not read a text like this and view it with our 21st century social justice mind. Our ideas of fairness and equality. The ancient Eastern world was far different from ours. Our ideas of fairness and equality are not the basis of our exegesis of God's Word. Well, I think it should be this, so therefore I'm going to interpret it this way. The basis of our exegesis of God's Word is God's holy character. It comes out of God's holy character. That's how we're to interpret any scripture. The basis of it is God Himself. We are not free to make interpretations on our own. What did we read again in Peter? We were reminded that what? Our mind, our mind, our mind. We are to have our mind prepared. And how do we prepare it? Through the Word of God. Letting God speak to us, not what I think, what I want God to say, or what I think God is saying. But there are some lessons we can learn here. For as crazy as this thing is to us today, though it may seem unfair to the woman to go through this process on mere speculation, we need to remember that she will be judged by an impartial God. God is the judge here. And only divine judgment is going to be administered if need be. She's actually in the safest place she could be if she's innocent. Because if it was left up to her husband, he could therefore then ignore her, not provide for her, all kinds of things he could do. But if he brings her before the Lord, let God be the judge. She's safe if she is innocent. And God will always judge correctly. There's never going to be a mistake. She drinks this concoction that you and I would probably never drink unless we were out in the desert and that was the last thing we had to drink, right? There's never going to be a, well, you know, there was a bacteria in there and this happened and that, you know. Hey, I know what it's like to be in a foreign country and drink water that I'm not used to. Let me tell you something. It's not pleasant. You don't want to go through it. I lost 10 pounds and that's, I mean, it was great to lose 10 pounds, but that's not the way you want to lose 10 pounds. No mistake was going to happen. God is going to judge impartially, and God's going to judge correctly. Remember what Peter wrote to his audience. We read it this morning in 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. If the woman is innocent, she will not incur punishment. Why? Because her shepherd will defend her. Her shepherd will defend her. If she is guilty, she will incur the just penalty from God. Another lesson that we can see here, and we'll close with this, is let God be your judge. And when somebody comes to you and accuses you of something, says you're this, you're that, do not be quick to revile back. Do not be quick to uh, uh, seek revenge. 
Follow the example of Jesus. There's nobody more falsely accused in human history than Jesus. Nobody. Peter writes to his audience this about Jesus when he was falsely accused. And this is how we should do. This is how we should be. 1 Peter 2, 23. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. You know what's crazy about you? What I, what's crazy? What I find interesting about that? If anybody could threaten, it's Jesus. And he could back up his threats. But he chose not to. Why? But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We can rest when accusations come, if they're false, or even if they're real. And we make restitution. We make restitution with those whom we've sinned against. We've asked God for forgiveness. Then we can trust that God is going to judge justly. That if I'm innocent, God holds me as innocent. If I'm guilty, I'll be guilty. But if I ask for forgiveness and ask for the blood of Christ to cover me, I'll be innocent. God is a just God. And though we may not understand something like this, the fact is that woman was in the best place she could possibly be, standing before a holy, impartial God who would give a right judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes things are hard. I think of, again, what Peter says about Paul's writings. They're hard to understand. We don't always get it. Lord, I pray that we would understand that you are holy and you are just. And we thank you that the holiness of Christ has been applied to us. And we thank you that the justice of God has been applied to Christ for us. Amen and amen. All right, let us stand and grab our hymnals. And there was a theme that kept being spoken, was holy. So we're going to sing holy, holy, holy. And that's page three. <coughs> we'll sing all four verses. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, Early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints adore Thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before Thee, which word and art and 
evermore shall be. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee. Perfect in power, in love, in purity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All thy works, thy praise, thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Amen.